Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, Back to School, Back to Safety. Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers. I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm joined with... The better co-host, Andrea Parker. Mm-hmm. How are you so sure you're the better co-host, Ms. Parker? Let's do a poll. I'm sure we'll get 100% in my favor. Because you'll be the only one voting? No, not at all. Womp womp. Anyway, so we're here, ready for the next school year coming up. and we're. Are we ready? I don't know. Are you ready? In terms of safety, I'm not sure. We're still at the bargaining table. We are still at the bargaining table. And since we're gearing up for this fight for safety in our schools, we thought it would be a really good idea to have some great guests to uh, discuss that. And who are they, Ms. Parker? Well, we know it is our president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Jesse Sharkey, joined with vice president of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacey Davis-Gates. And what better experts on bargaining on safety than those two? Exactly. All right. And we are here with Chicago Teachers Union president, Jesse Sharkey, and vice president, Stacey Davis-Gates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is our back to school episode, and we've got hundreds of thousands of students and parents, tens of thousands of educators and support staff out there ready to get back to school. And there's definitely a lot of anxiety about the return to school and how that's going to be set up for this upcoming school year. And so we're going to just get right into it so we can inform our listeners. I think it is safe to say that the number one thing on the minds of members parents, and probably students, is what kind of safety measures will we put in the buildings? And do we have an agreement with CPS on safety? I mean, I and I think you're right. It it is the big thing on people's minds. Uh, If you look at the news, the Delta variant, I think it up end of the table. You know, if people thought coming into summer break in in May and June that that maybe we were looking at the tail end of this pandemic, um, you know, the, the news from around the country is, is changing that. Childhood infections are, are, are at the record highs as well. So, uh, you know, this is, this is dangerous stuff. And the, the difficulty uh, with, with where we're at right now is that we had safety agreements in place in the winter and in the spring uh, that did a pretty good job keeping us safe. We didn't have outbreaks in schools. Um, there were a couple related to sports, but 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 our schools, you know, the layered mitigations, the, the, you know, the masks, the social distancing, um, the testing of the various programs that we had kept things safe. In fact, kept things safe by the mayor's own admissions. And they started off negotiations this time by proposing to roll back a lot, a lot of those safety procedures. Um, so, for example, the social distancing, they really want to go from um, six feet to three feet where possible. Where you know, where that exception, where possible, will sw- wind up swallowing the rule. So uh, you know, we're we're pretty skeptical about that. Um, in fact, we're adamantly opposed to that. And they want to uh, get rid of the metric, you know, which was something that we really um, fought incredibly hard for. It was it was one of the things that we were staying out of work um, because they wouldn't say, okay, if if the transmission gets up to a certain rate, we're not going to subject people to that. We're trying to we were trying to like lock the mayor in because there's so much. Um, political pressure to keep schools open at all costs. We're, we're looking for commitments about what they'll do to keep us safe. And, yeah. and so that's just a couple of examples. There's others. Um, those are those are big ones. Um, and so in a nutshell, no, we don't, we, you know, we don't have commitments on, on those key issues uh, yet. 
We do have commitments on, uh, or I think in a place where we, I think we can get commitments on some of the basic kind of the, the nuts and bolts stuff in our buildings. So for example, a uh, number of the cleaning protocols haven't changed, safety committees, um, you know, where we're quite confident um, we, can, we can land that. And so we'll have some mechanisms for people to make sure that some of the most egregious things um, going on and, you know, in, in your buildings are, are being dealt with. But some of the big, broader, more social things that, I, you know, some of the, uh, the system wide things that have to do with uh, the way the school system operates, how many students are in, are in your school building, um, what the metrics are. We don't have agreements in that yet. In January, we walked out over the fact that we don't have an agreement in place. Why are we not walking out this time? What's different when we don't have an agreement this time as opposed to January? The big difference is that the, the pandemic is at a different place. In January, there wasn't a vaccine. Now our members are all vaccinated. In January, just coming off what was the highest um, level of um, hospitalization and death that we had in Illinois, um, now we're coming off what's been one of the lowest. So, you know, yeah, there are parts of the country where this thing is extremely scary and, and we're, we're right to be worried about that. Um, but that's not where we're at right now in Illinois. Hospitalization death rates are, are still very low in the state. Um, and then I think really those things uh, have a big influence on where our members are at. You know, we talk to members. Um, you, you know, there's, it was, it was incredibly traumatic. It was, it was really difficult negotiation in mean, teaching outside of our buildings and snowbanks. Um, the board has since dropped the discipline on, on, on members. They had gone after some members. They've dropped that now, which we said they would, but it, it still took a lot out of people. Um, I think people went into the summer being as exhausted as ever seen with the teachers. People were just dog tired. We did not hear from members that there was a big sentiment for us to be walking out. Now, the fact that we're going in does not mean that we're staying in. I mean, I should say that. Hopefully, we the, the pandemic doesn't kick back up. But if it starts getting back up um, to the levels where we said that we wouldn't be operating school in last winter, I don't see any reason why we should be operating schools uh, in the fall. And, you know, people should hear us say that we're, we'd be prepared to lead in action to keep folks safe. Simple as that. I mean, we prefer to do that at the bargaining table. We prefer to get layered mitigations, good testing. We prefer to get social distance, all the things that we need. Um, you know, we prefer to do that by, by working together with the board. But if we if we can't do it that way, then there's other ways to do it. So even though CTU are still bargaining with um, the CPS officials and with the mayor in terms of safety, we know that there are some charter schools that have won some safety wins and safety agreements. Can you talk about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one one thing about dealing with CPS is that CPS does not have a work together muscle. That's a weakness of theirs. And so, you know, they say that things are impossible. Oh, it's impossible to get an agreement on social distancing because we couldn't operate our schools. But we have agreements about that and and, and, uh, agreements that we have with some of the unionized uh, charter schools in the city of Chicago. So we know it can be done. They're, they're dealing with the same per people funding. Proportionally, they got the same federal relief money. And so you've got charter operators that said, you know, if you're having trouble with getting social distancing figured out, the safety committee at school can use the federal dollars to help alleviate problems with staffing and overcrowding, um, which is something that the board has been unwilling to agree to. Um, and, and so I, I think that I'm, I'm glad you raised that because it's proof, if you will, that this can be done, that we can figure out how to make agreements um, that, that help ensure our safety at school. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy that you've got charter schools all over the city that can figure out how to make this work, but 
theoretically the lar- one of the largest school districts in the country doesn't have the resources to pull this together. With $2 billion. Right. <laughs> With $2 billion. They've got the resources, but they don't have as the will. This is the way I understand it, is that they said the direction of their plans um, in um, the late fall and early summer when when they assumed that they were coming out of a pandemic. And, you know, this is a, a, an organization that, that lost its top leadership. So the people who like really have the ability to think big picture and say, well, we need to change our whole direction. Um, it's just not there. So they, they, they're now locked into trying to operationalize a plan whose direction was set when we didn't have the Delta variant. That's a, a way to understand um, the issues that we're dealing with at the table right now. Yes. So we know that both um, you, Jesse, and Stacey are parents of CPS students. So how are you feeling about the return to school and the CPS plan for any reference to them? Oh, Lord. <laughs> uh, you know, my... my uh, my big one graduated. So, um, I, you know, I just, I just drove him off to college. Um, I'm a little sad about that, but, um, um, but, the, but the little and the little one starting high school, you know, it's intimidating. And I'll, and I'll say that because um, we, um, you know, we, he's vaccinated, but, but most, you know, students, uh, most student age uh, children in the city of Chicago aren't. And so, you know, you've got vaccination rates among 12 to 17 year olds that, um, you know, black students, uh, just this information is a few weeks old, but it was at 12%. In, in parents' communities, we've got a whole number of communities. I think the six low zip codes are averaging around 30% vaccinated. So, uh, um, yeah, no, I'm extremely worried. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm worried that it could bring it home. Breakthrough cases are relatively rare, but, um, you know, not only are we worried for our own safety, I'm worried for his. And then certainly about what happens if there is an outbreak in the school and that winds up um, sickening people. And it just, it, you know, the the fact that we don't, for example, uh, have details about how testing is going to work. You know, in Los Angeles, uh, they ran a baseline test, I guess you'd call it, for every student and staff member in the uh, L.A. public schools. And, and um, they discovered 33,200 cases of COVID on that background test. For the first week they ran the testing, they found an additional 1,900, just shy of 1,900 cases for students and staff. So we're talking about there's a lot of COVID out there right now. And um, CPS is saying, well, we're going to run a testing program too. And they don't even have the consent forms available yet. You know, they're saying we're going to get those out to you. I mean, I think it's quite likely that this testing program is not is is not up and running uh, when school starts next week. Who knows when it's going to be up and running? And so, yeah, I mean, if we're not worried about this on a personal level, uh, we're not paying attention. Yeah, I'm struggling. My children are like everyone else's children. They want to be back in their social space with their friend. They want some normalcy. Um, what I fear, quite frankly, is that upon their return to school, it won't be what they remember and love because of all of the mitigations that I'm praying to Jesus will be employed because my two girls are not vaccinated. My son is. Um, it's difficult having the cheat sheet. Sometimes I wish I was a regular parent. And that I did not know everything that I do know about the administration of our school district. You know, the only thing that I got to get right in this life is protecting them, making sure that they have what they need, some of what they want, 
and that they have the advantages of a stable household. I'm questioning how I do that in this moment. It's not easy. I don't think that parents are regarded in the Chicago public schools in a real way. I think that parents like me who live on the south side of Chicago are afterthoughts to our school district and to our mayor. Yeah, I'm struggling. You know, I'm leaning on my husband a lot for his perspective, his um, strength. I think we're putting too much on kids to be responsible for their safety in the middle of a pandemic. And I don't have any choice. You know, you got all these choice freaks out here talking about that all the time. The pandemic doesn't offer that. And the school district has been inflexible. This is when a mayor running a school district, to be honest with you, is problematic. Because uh, the decisions of a mayor a political actor emanate from polling. They don't emanate necessarily from common good. And so here we are at the precipice of reopening schools. And we see even in spaces that are putting the layers of mitigation into place that there are still gaps. And CPS, they're rolling back mitigations. And telling parents that if you don't bring your kid to the school, they'll lose their space at a selective enrollment school or at the magnet that they attend. It is inhumane. It lacks integrity and compassion. I am struggling. I do a lot of things well, and I am failing at getting myself to a place where I am comfortable with my children returning to their school community. And I love our school community. I love the people there. I think that they work well together. Even the things that they disagree on over there, they figure out. I feel like children are a priority in that space. And um, this is still a pandemic. And the Delta variant could give a damn about how great those people are and how well they work together. And our mayor could give a damn about the type of flexibility and creativity that is necessary to keep people safe in this moment. We are really and truly between a rock and a hard place. I'm pretty pissy. Well, okay. So I know that CTU sent out a request for members to report what they're seeing in the buildings. What are you guys hearing about that so far? How has that come out? First of all, there's been an outpouring. We've gotten a lot, gotten a lot of email about it. Um, I'll tell you. I mean, one of the one of the first things that that really jumps off the page at you is this whole idea that CPS has been saying that they'll do three feet where possible. Um, it's just email after email saying, you know, where possible. It's a joke. There's zero percent chance that's going to happen. You know, my preschoolers are one foot. Their 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 chairs are one foot apart. Um, they're sitting shoulder to shoulder, uh, desks are touching, you know, I've got 34 kids in my class and, uh, me and, t- and, 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 two TAs, there's no way that's going to work. I mean, just there's an outpouring about that. Um, oh, hearing a lot of concerns from people who, who teach, um, art, music, uh, physical education, other, other so-called specials in the elementary school level, you know, CPS, uh, last winter, you know, there was pods, but it was also that they changed schedule so that like the specialist teachers didn't teach every student in the school all in one week. You know, they would they would rotate the schedule so that someone would, you know, 
you know, I'm teaching a, a more intensive version of my class. I'm teaching it to the same kids multiple times a week. And then at the end of a quarter, it switches. So kids wind up getting every one of their different classes, but only over the course of a year. Um, a lot of schools program that way, um, but a lot of them didn't. And so for the schools that didn't, I think CPS is now sort of saying to us, oh, we're going to give them the opportunity to do that. But, you know, I, you know, if there's principals that won't reprogram or, or didn't think about that or, or weren't being uh, thoughtful about uh, the kind of risk that they're exposing their specialist teachers to, you know, a situation where someone's teaching music to, you know, 500 kids in a week. So you're seeing every kid in a school and so there's trepidation about that. Uh, and then of course, you know, it's been brutally hot. <laughs> so, so we're getting a lot of emails about, you know, my room is 95 degrees. I've got a little, I don't have a fan, you know, it's, it's, it's stifling in the air. Um, there's no AC, the room is dirty. I mean, you know, the pre- pretty typical beginning of school concerns as well. So last year we had safety mi- committees put in place in order to hold um, CPS accountable to make sure that buildings stay clean. Um, so we can uh, guess, uh, try to alleviate any type of spread of COVID. So what is happening with the safety um, committee? And is there an agreement with CPS on this, at least for now? CPS has agreed that the safety committees need to stay in place. I don't think it will be politically defend- defensible for them to say, no, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and you don't have any way to address local level complaints. Uh, and I'm sure that's why they left it in place. Uh, I will say that, um, you know, some number of the of, of the building, I mean, I went back and reviewed the, the uh, checklist and, you know, there's a handful of things that are about social distancing, which are which are going to wind up being different. But, you know, a lot of the things that about the safety uh, checklist have to do with cleaning protocols that are going to stay in place. And so there will be work for the safety committee to do. The other thing about the safety committee language is that it also says the safety committee has the ability to, to address the overall building safety. So it's not just about enforcing a checklist. It's also about saying this is a situation which wasn't contemplated specifically in the MOA, but is obviously doesn't pass the safety test. And what that means is those have to be a place where people can talk about what, what folks need in order to um, have layers of mitigations in order to like operate our building in a way that makes sense, um, in a way that um, stops or reduces the spread of COVID. And um, we have to be able to like fight for our opinions in those committees, talk to parents, um, talk to coworkers, and if need be, you know, take votes and make those votes public about the kinds of uh, policies that are being enacted in schools. And I just can see lots and lots of ways in which that's going to be the critical piece in, in so many of our schools about, about giving people a voice and giving people the right to, to um, keep their conditions as safe as possible. So how would I publicize like a decision from the safety committee? Let's say I've got a safety committee and the principal is not feeling it. Like I say, hey, my windows don't open. It's 100 degrees in here. We've got no ventilation. I bring it to safety committee. Nothing happens. The principal doesn't change it. The PPC is not doing it. How do I get this out in the public so I can get some change from my, my students? Yeah, I mean, it, for a case like the windows, um, you know, actually, it's pretty clear. It says that, you know, if you don't have windows that open or, or you don't have a, a, a HVAC system or some of the ventilation system that works, that room shall not be used. And you could take that. There's, there's a district version of the committee uh, which reviews the complaints that come in daily, and we should be able to get relief that way. But, you know, let's say, for example, it was, it was uh, a situation that was a little less clear. Like, so, for example... Um, let's say you've got 35 kids in your fifth period class, you know, and it's a small room and there's no way there's three feet between them. 
and you believe there's a, a, a way that they could reprogram that class, um, you know, so that, you know, so that there were, were I was speaking of a smaller class, if you could get it down to, to 25 or even the class size maximum, which is supposed to be 28, um, you know, when we have contractual language for, you could actually have enough space that people wouldn't be on top of each other. Um, and so let's say you demand that they reprogram the class and the principal says no. So what I would suggest then doing is, you know, um, you go to the committee with the case, whether that's pictures or anecdotal evidence, you know, it's trying trying to make uh, make it really clear the situation you're in, um, you know, inside the classroom and why it's unacceptable, why it violates three feet. Then you make it clear that there is a workable solution which could alleviate the problem. You make a pitch for that in the safety committee. If the principal says no, you'd outvote, you'd outvote the principal on it. And then you can say the principal has disagreed, but the safety committee of this school, the official safety committee, has voted to make the following change in order to keep us safe. Um, and then you would campaign around that. You'd use that to talk to the local school council. You'd use that, you know, you'd make sure the union got word about it. And we, we do, we help you coordinate work in the press. Um, we would talk to local community organizations, parents. Um, in other words, like uh, we would add public pressure to, in a situation where, um, uh, where, where there's actually a vote, there's an official position from the official safety committee of a school saying this is not an acceptable situation. It's got to change. Um, now, I hope there's a lot of situations in where it doesn't get to all that. You know, if we've got to run a campaign every time there's too many kids in a classroom in order to be able to operate in a class, um, that's going to be a lot of work for folks. But that is ultimately an important and powerful tool that we have in our toolbox. This is kind of switching gears a little bit, even though we're still kind of in reference to safety. Another question we have from our listeners is what hap- what is happening with simultaneous teaching? So we know that because of this pandemic that some students are staying home, some students are returning to school, and, te- and teachers have been doing simultaneous teaching since, like, February. What's the latest with that? This is another area where um, where the CPS's, uh, the city's rhetoric don't match what they're doing. They went around saying that simultaneous teaching uh, wasn't something that they thought was a good idea. They were against it, um, not something that they, that they supported. But what the other thing they also said, and this this is the this is the part where there's a, a, a disconnect, is that if there was an exposure to COVID, they would only be quarantining people who were unvaccinated. So that means that the both the teachers, but also your unvaccinated students, are going to basically stay in school no matter what, unless they're actually having symptoms, you know, testing positive. So teachers are going to be in the buildings with portions of our class. Certainly in high school, there will be some vaccinated kids that will be there in front of them. Um, and they're saying in that situation, it's the responsibility of the teacher to simultaneously instruct the students that are on quarantine at home. Um, so simultaneous is back. It's going to be a mess. That's nuts. A lot of members are concerned about things in the building. I've gotten questions as a field rep about principals not enforcing the mask mandate. Um, just today, I got one about a principal who said that the building is so hot for their PD in the, in the gym that everybody can take their mask off. Stuff like that is, is really worrying a lot of members that we have these ideas, we have these mitigation strategies, but they're not really going forward. They're not really being um, enforced. Yeah. Not being enforced. Exactly. Thank you. Ms. Parker. Of course. Appreciate that. Um, so, you know, maybe we can talk about some of these issues and, and how that rolls out in the building. Yeah, it's the rollback. Actually, let, let me um, um, uh, pass the ball to Stacey on, on some of this stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's the rollback. That's what we're seeing. 
this is where the relationships that are, um, you know, typically lower stakes. So you have buildings where principals really have a lot of power and authority. And if they are good about building community, the faculty and the staff feel comfortable with, you know, raising their hand or challenging um, policies and so forth. It's in the buildings, though, that have had like bully principals or principals who are unapproachable, where these types of rollbacks or lack of adherence to the protocols become an issue. What I would say out loud is that you have a safety committee and a PPC, and you really and truly have to be monogamous to working in solidarity at those tables. Because one thing that it does is that it doesn't isolate you. It it gives you a team of individuals that can raise questions together. And it's easier, you know, more than not, it's safer, especially if you're, if there's a toxic, you know, boss relationship happening inside that building. But I do want to make this clear. Safety, as it relates to the health of the individuals, all of the individuals inside of that school community remain the priority. And you got to like swallow and push back because it is not fair for anyone in that school community to have loose interpretation of layered mitigation or for layered mitigation to not be enforced. You need that. And we don't just need that. Our students need that. And all of our families need that. So you really and truly have to swallow, breathe deeply, and forge ahead with enforcement of what you need in order to be safe, because that is a priority. Look, you don't get tomorrow if you're not safe today. That's true. So what? what I know we've got the, the vaccine mandate by October 15th. What happens to me if I'm a teacher and I'm not vaccinated by the 15th or I'm unable to get my vaccine or be fully vaccinated, I guess is the way it's phrased, before October 15th? I think one of the things that I'm saying about the mandate is that we were clear about the safety of vaccines and our need to have vaccines when we started this reopening endeavor. You know, you remember, folks remember who are listening, that was a sticking point with respect to how we returned to the school buildings, is that our members wanted to be vaccinated. So I would say that the overwhelming majority of our members are already vaccinated because they understand the function of vaccines and especially this one. So that's number one. Number two, the board is a difficult time implementing its own policies. Um, Right now, our members are having a very tough time accessing the forms to make those um, requests because of they have a medical or religious exemption. We are working with them to try and figure this out. What I will say to members is what I would say about any other policy or mandate. Record who you talk to, time and date. Make quick notes about what you spoke about, what you said, and what the individual representing the district said. And continue to ask questions. If you continue to be stonewalled, make sure you're talking to your field rep at CTU. Have the ongoing communication 
with your principal as well. These communications shouldn't be verbal. They should be written. And if they are verbal, you should follow them up with an email um, reflecting the verbal discussion that you had. So it's time stamped and clear. Unfortunately, like most things our, our district um, does, it's half-baked, understaffed, and incomplete. Um, we make these things work. So just stay vigilant. Do your part, obviously, and we'll do ours as well with you. I mean, the other thing to say about vaccine is that, I mean, the elephant in the room on this is what I said before about how few students are, are vaccinated right now and in, in, in the low level vaccination in our communities. Um, and that's really at the heart of why we've really continued to push for CPS to do more than just say, oh, you, you know, people should get vaccinated. Um, but we're talking about communities where it's difficult. People don't have good transportation options, where, um, uh, where there's a lot of legitimate mistrust of local government institutions, where um, uh, people lead you know, difficult, chaotic lives, and uh, vaccination rates have been really low. And so, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, our society vaccinated every man, woman, and child against polio in schools. So, you know, this could be done. We've got a model for it, but, uh, they, you know, the, the, so far the board hasn't been willing to agree to use the schools in that kind of a way. Uh, and I think, it, you know, the, they've had pop-up vaccine clinics and barbershops and, it, you know, they've, uh, they've done it at churches, but, you know, schools in every neighborhood in the city, distributed across the city, everyone's kids go there. Um, no, we haven't done it there, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and it's been one of the things that we've been fighting for. No, definitely. I mean, I know we've had them at CTU, the pop-up events. I was just there last Friday um, for our back-to-school event, and I was I was really surprised how many people came up to get themselves and their kids vaccinated at uh, the CTU offices. It was it was very cool to see all these people coming in and making sure that they and their families and communities are safe. Yeah, I agree. I volunteered at one of them. We all were at Inglewood STEM. And that was a really nice event. So it's, it's definitely necessary because some people don't have access as they would like. So we're going to go to our final question, I think. So how can CPS claim that they don't have resources when we have an extra $4 billion in the city budget? I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to just kind of go in deeper detail. I would say that what I, the first thing that I said, you know, when I heard the pushback coming from the mayor is that, is this 2017? Is this 2016? Is this 2015? Is this 2014? It's almost like the talking points are recycled in ways that are so disingenuous and um, not reflective of the needs of right now. We got a school district just north of us that is using some of their federal relief funds to provide relief to families that are having difficulty with housing, right? They're, they're providing eviction relief, um, rental assistance. And 40%, if I'm not mistaken, of all evictions that have been filed thus far are here in the city of Chicago. Now you think about what that means for the families and the students um, that we serve. It's going to be a lot of them. There's been a lot made about the instability of this moment with respect to COVID. Now compound that with being houseless, right? The funds were sent here to Chicago and to our school district to help protect us because the COVID is still what it is and provide us with some infrastructure to help us recover. 
but you have to have the political will, meaning those in power are mayor because she's in charge of both the district and the city. So she literally has $4 billion at her fingertips. She has to be compelled to be human in this moment and to see the needs of our students. We can see with their plan to return to our school buildings that they do not intend to expand anything extra to provide more. Juxtaposed to that, we've had a very violent summer. We have days where there are multiple mass shootings in this city. Think about that for a moment. The type of trauma that people are carrying in this city now is probably unprecedented. You know, with the pandemic, with economic insecurity, with housing insecurity, with food insecurity, we really need a leader who sees people and the necessity to um, be compassionate and to put together um, a roll call of programming that speaks to their needs. Unfortunately, we don't have that. Um, we have someone who is intent on basically giving banks more money. The city budget is coming up and each one of us has an ordinance. We got to make a demand of the city budget. We have to keep making demands in our um, school communities. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I, you know, basically what they do is in Chicago has a, a persistent budget shortfall that is locked in by the fact that our largest corporate property owners uh, and businesses don't pay high enough rates of taxes. And so the schools persistently run a shortfall, uh, talking about billions of dollars in debt. And so when the CPS got, got what they view as a windfall from the federal government, they're saving it to try to pay off debt rather than using it for what it's actually for, which is to meet needs and, you know, debt relief, which is explicitly part of the rules. That's not supposed to be what this money is used for. And yet that's exactly what they're using it for at both the city and, and school level. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a, a negative impact on our students and our children uh, this year, you know, the first time there's someone in a class that comes in with COVID and people have to go on quarantine and teachers have to bring their uh, uh, simultaneous teaching setups back out. Think about the way we, we could have been using that money. You know, you could have had an assistant in your classroom to help track the students that are trying to, to, to tune into your classroom remotely. So someone, someone whose job was to actually pay attention to those kids while you pay attention to the kids that are still in front of you in your room. Um, it could help pay for point twos for teachers. So teachers could come after, you know, you know, after the normal hours could and, and could get um, paid to like actually check in with students and, and, and do instruction on a homebound model, which is a whole existing model for how this works. Um, you could be enrolling students um, to, for teachers that are, whose job is to teach the, you know, students remotely. You could have a group of a little cohort of people in each school. There'd be a lot of things that you could do. They require resources, not, not the end of the world kind of resources, um, but just it's just it's a practical matter. Um, they're going to make our lives infinitely harder b- because they're they're not willing to uh, spend the, the money that actually is there. That's frustrating, and, and it's something that goes all the way, you know, from the very practical level in your classroom, all the way up to big city issues, um, affect tens of thousands of people, you know, in their housing, um, you, you know, are going to affect the overall dynamics, the health of our city uh, for a generation. One of the recurring themes we seem to have on the podcast is talking about how a budget is really a moral document. It's, it shows what a society or a community or a school board values. And when they value paying off banks and debt relief over servicing the trauma of our students, 
it says something about the the attitude of our of our leadership. And you know, in a time like this, when they're trying to lay off teachers, you know, to keep those teachers employed would have been less than one percent of what that total amount was that that the city's gotten, and they can't even do that. It really shows where the priorities are of the mayor and of our school board right now. You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is, you know, what it would feel like for me to be in my classroom right now and where would my capacity be to offer grace and flexibility to the students that would be coming in and out of the space. You know, we're dealing with a lot of anxiety even as grown-ups, but to access, you know, the emotions of our students is going to be very critical. You know, having a strong reopening agreement frees up some of the headspace, some of our heart, some of our understanding for our students. I think I'm really resentful that our mayor and her team at CPS don't understand how important it is to take care of the teachers so there's enough room to take care of the people who are coming in and out of those classrooms. Um, Because it's going to be hard and folks are going to be exhausted and you're trying to deal with it mentally and emotionally. Your students are trying to deal with it mentally and emotionally. And how do we do that together? You know, I really pray for our members in this moment that they have both the room and, and space and their emotions to, you know, absorb what they will have to with our students. I'm just really concerned about the climate of our buildings going back in. And I am praying that there's a lot of grace and mercy, a lot of flexibility, a lot of um, deep breathing and patience available to everyone in the school communities. Um, I'm hopeful that our members will continue to lead that and demonstrate and model what that looks like um, in our classrooms because our students are going to need that. You know, they're hearing one thing on the news. They're hearing another thing from their families. They're hearing all of these other things from their peer group, not to mention, you know, what's running rampant on social media. We are really going to have to anchor this school year. We really are. Not unlike we have before, but under these extraordinary circumstances. So I really hope that our members find ways to balance all of the responsibilities, all of the humanity that um, they can in this moment. And especially those members who are parents, you know, I pray mercy on your spirit um, to help calm those anxieties because parents are not okay. I'm struggling myself, you know, very much so. And so um, these are trying times. And I think people forget that we're human beings. The people you encounter in your school communities are actual people. They share concerns, the same concerns that you share. They have some of the same types of trepidations that you have. And yet they're in front of these young people and they have to figure it out. For the members listening, um, keep backing each other up, keep sticking together. Uh, and we're, we're going to act like the union pandemic has been really challenging and trying. Um, and uh, we're going to we're going to keep um, we're going to stay strong and, and keep getting through it. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks. Back to school, back to safety. If you want to listen to any of our previous podcasts or you want to become faithful listeners, we are available on all your podcasting platforms, okay? And if you have a great idea for an episode, 
don't hesitate to reach out to us. We can be reached at CTU Speaks at ctulocal1.org. And Jim, what's that phone number they want to call us? 312-467-8888. Yes, you got it right. I got it right. I wasn't even sure that was it. You know, and before we go, I want to mention a couple things. We got some safety committee trainings coming up on September 2nd and September 8th. They're already set up at five o'clock. You can sign up online at ctulocal1.org slash training. And we're going to have more of these trainings coming up, but those are the only two we got set up right now. So if you missed those, don't worry. We're going to have more of them. And one other thing you may have noticed in your mailbox, there was something that came in there from the CTU Policy Fellowship. We've got applications that we're taking for that from now until the middle of September. And this is for anybody who wants to get involved in policy advocacy here at CTU. You can be part of that. It's a year-long program, comes with a little bit of a stipend, but even more importantly than that, we got a lot of learning, a lot of camaraderie, and a lot of work that we got to get done here at CTU. So that's what we're all about here, getting things done. And getting them done right. Getting them done right. All right. Well, thank you so much, listeners, for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks, where we only speak what matters. See you soon.